0: This is the Taiwan History Podcast Formosa Files, Season 3, Episode 35, Bits and Pieces of Stinky Tofu and a Pre-Announcement Announcement.
1: Mosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qichuan served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung
0: Medical College. Formosa Files. Oh yeah, the Formosa Files team is back. Eric Michael Smith and John Ross. So
1: Eric, you're a bit full on with the radio voice today, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I'm compensating for the fact that I have some sort of a cold. But yes, today's voice is going to be deeper than usual. But today is also going to be one of our Bits and Pieces episodes, where we look back at some of our recent episodes, you know, and share some of the material that ended up on the cutting floor. As soon as John and I had finished our last episode on famous Taiwan foods, I realized we'd made a major omission. We talked about stinky tofu, but we didn't cover its history.
1: Not exactly a crime against humanity.
0: No, but close, as this is a history podcast.
1: Well, as a non-meat eater, I think your interest in soy products exceeds my own fascination.
0: So you're saying you dislike soy? Uh,
1: My wife grinds the beans every morning for fresh soybean milk, but I stick with my coffee. Uh, Wow. It's okay, but yeah, I can live without it.
0: I would love to taste fresh soybean milk. And you should be careful when talking about your wife, because as I know, she sometimes listens to this show, does she not?
1: Yeah, sometimes. And after listening to that last podcast, she went out and bought some stinky tofu.
0: So, John, you've kind of carved out in this podcast, uh, get off my lawn, sort of, you know, the the, the young people (laughs) these days. That's your your thing. So, um, what about if your life depended on defending tofu? Give us a historical argument.
1: Okay. Okay. In China's long history, soy was an important source of protein. Meat was a rare treat, so this soy is important.
0: Good point. And have you heard of tofu being called meat without bones?
1: Meat without bones? No, but I get the reference as a protein substitute. A rather poor substitute taste-wise. But yeah, tofu is packed full of nutrition, so China's great population Very much based on rice growing, but also soy products.
0: Some people might take issue with your uh, uh, poor taste substitution issue, but soy provides the same nutrition as dairy and meat. But it's much cheaper and better for the environment.
1: Yeah, as I said, soy is one of the reasons China could, before the advent of chemical fertilizers, have such a dense population.
0: Okay, so looking at tofu, which is made from soybeans, Tofu dates back a couple thousand years. But stinky tofu, chou doufu, is a form of fermented tofu, and it's really not that old.
1: No, and the origins of stinky tofu are murky. There's no accepted origin story.
0: Here's the Wikipedia entry for, you know, origin. According to a Chinese legend, a scholar named Wang Zi hailing from Huangshan in Anhui province, invented stinky tofu during the Qing dynasty. After failing the imperial examination, Wang stayed in Beijing and relied on selling tofu to make a living. One day, having a huge quantity of unsold tofu on his hands, he cut the tofu into small cubes and put them into an earthen jar. The stinky tofu that Wang Zihe invented gained popularity and was later served at the imperial Qing dynasty palace.
1: Yeah, that, Reading was better than the actual uh, extract. (laughs) The Qing Dynasty, it says. The Qing Dynasty. That's a useless time reference. One of my pet peeves.
0: The Qing Dynasty lasted from 1644 to 1911. 267 years. So, yeah, the Qing Dynasty. Quite a range.
1: Yeah, exactly. You're going around a museum and an artifact is labeled as Qing Dynasty. Uh, Thanks a lot. Not very helpful.
0: I think my favorite part of that story is that he failed the imperial examination and then did that.
1: Well, most people did fail the imperial examination. Most failed it many times, perhaps squandered their family fortune and ensured uh, generations of misery.
0: That's right. That's right. No, yeah, I forget that sometimes. Okay, kick
1: off the Taiping Rebellion. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. The Taiping guy, he failed what? How many times? I forget. Me many. too. Yeah. Yeah, but. Sometimes when they're telling like origin stories, they give the reign year of the you know the monarch, something like the twelfth year of the Qianlong Emperor. But that's also not very helpful for most people.
1: Yeah, I had a look. In the case of that tofu story, tofu story, it's from the reign of one of China's greatest emperors, Kangxi.
0: Ah, Kangxi, whose reign was, and these are dates I can actually remember. Early 1661, when Koxinga arrived in Taiwan and attacked the Dutch.
1: And then he had the longest official reign of an emperor up until...
0: Up until the, the year after the duck farmer Zhuigui rebellion of 1721. Okay, but dates aside, the accidental discovery of stinky tofu, I mean, it seems mm, plausible, doesn't it? Yes, but there are other theories. Yeah, sure. Fermentation was used for other foods and beverages, especially in the northern borderlands. The Mongols and others fermented milk to produce various products. Didn't they even have like some sort of milky alcohol fermented thing?
1: Yeah, horses' milk. Quite tasty.
0: Mm. <laughs> really? Have you tried it?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Amazing. Uh, anyway, sometimes the history of words gives us some insight. So let's turn to the Online Etymology Dictionary.
0: The entry for soy says, quote, soy is a noun, 1670s, soybean-based Asian fish sauce from the Dutch soya, from the Japanese soyu, variant of shoyu, from the Chinese shu, from shu, fermented soybeans, and yu, oil. Does that clear everything up? Oh, my
1: goodness. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's cleared everything <laughs> up for everyone. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> no, mm. Very confusing, but the takeaways are that it's originally from China. It went to Japan. The name comes to us from Japan, and it's as soya sauce. And the Dutch were the only Europeans allowed to trade in Japan at that time. They brought the word back. So soy originally related to soya sauce, and it's from Japan.
0: And this dictionary says the name soy sauce dates back to 1795.
1: As for stinky tofu getting a mention in a dictionary, there's a reference in 1892 from Herbert Giles, a British sinologist who actually spent a few years here in Taiwan.
0: Yes, we did an episode on him and his wife. Season 2, episode 20, Mr. and Mrs. Giles.
1: Yes, his wife was a writer, and she wrote a novel and a short story uh, set here in Taiwan.
0: Anyway, under the character Cho, Stinky, the entry reads, Cho Fu, Stinking Bean Curd, Noxious.
1: Noxious, that's pretty harsh.
0: (laughs) Apparently, he wasn't a a big fan.
1: Well, I'm not that big a fan of his romanization system.
0: (laughs) Same here. (laughs)
1: Anyway, that Giles Dictionary entry was from, okay, uh, 1892, but fermented tofu, uh, stinky tofu itself, it had arrived in the Western world before that. I'm not sure where and when it arrived first, but there's a mention of it in Melbourne, Australia in 1858. What? Uh, Yeah, it's called Pickle Beans Curd. It was part of a shipment of Chinese foods sent to Chinese in Australia, and they were there because of a gold rush, a huge gold rush in the state of Victoria in the 1850s.
0: Okay, this is weird. You strike it rich in the gold fields, you cash in your gold dust and go crazy on wine, women, and fermented tofu. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Well, fermentation is a way of preserving food. So Whereas you couldn't send over fresh tofu, you know, long distances in a ship, fermented tofu was okay.
0: The California gold rush also resulted in Chinese workers moving there around that same time, and some stayed on. I read that fermented tofu was first made in the Western world, that would be specifically San Francisco, in 1878.
1: In China, there are some highly celebrated inventions. They're known as the Four great inventions. Gunpowder, the compass, printing, and paper. Perhaps tofu could be added as a fifth.
0: Funny. Uh you delivered that completely straight. There was no joking there.
1: <laughs> yes. It is strange, perhaps, that nobody in the West tried to ferment beans.
0: Ah, oh, I get I you.
1: Mean, you know, you know, Europeans have fermented milk, they've pickled vegetables, fermented grapes for wine, cereals for beer, but not Beans, never fermented
0: beans. Yeah, that is sort of weird. Okay, moving on. So the prestigious local magazine, Commonwealth Magazine, their English version, recently ran an editorial piece on their website.
1: A very good piece about Formosa files. A piece which we wrote.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the person in charge of that English section is Guan Ying Liu or Liu Guan Ying. I want to thank her for publishing the piece. She runs a podcast, an English-language current events podcast. You should check it out. It's called Taiwanology. has a very distinct uh, logo of Taiwan. So for this editorial, we started with the lines, quote, You're living in Taiwan in 1895, and the Japanese army is steaming towards the island to take possession. What do you do? Resist the new rulers? Accept them? or move overseas. This is the kind of tough choice people faced in past centuries, in addition to frequent life and death hardships and problems of survival. With the Formosa Files podcast, we try not to be judgmental, not to hold historical figures to modern standards, and to see things in the context of the times."
1: Right, so Eric, how do you think you'd have chosen You're quite fond of singing the Japanese national anthem. So I think I know your answer.
0: You know, actually, when I thought about it, it's impossible to say. People say, like, put Mm. yourself in the shoes of someone, but you can't. I mean, I could put myself maybe in your shoes or, you know, but when it comes to history, you just can't.
1: Yeah, agreed. Anyway, as season three nears its end, what have we learned from doing Formosa Files?
0: Well, we learned that, for starters, there's a great appetite for history content. When we started, it was something of an experiment. So we asked ourselves, you know, was Taiwanese history too niche a subject for people around the world?
1: Niche. uh, Something of a code word. Niche, meaning very limited appeal. A tiny audience. Mm. Yeah. In publishing, we often have to say things like, great manuscript, but a little too niche. Yeah.
0: We also learned, or we think we've learned, that our listeners like the non-chronological storytelling approach that we've been using for the past couple of years.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. One thing that kind of surprises me is how easy it is to come up with topics. Uh, how how many episodes have we done so far?
0: Oh, it's, it's way more than oh, like 120 episodes. And then there's a bunch of interviews and there's bonuses and specials and videos and stuff.
1: Right, okay. There are just so many good stories, great material that we can use. You know, by world standards, we cover a relatively short time span, the roughly four hundred years of Taiwan's recorded history. So, you know, sixteen hundred, and then we sort of finished around about two thousand. But you know, there's an endless supply of good stories.
0: And happily there's a lot of new material popping up all the time. It's great. There's there's new books, museum exhibition here and there, and Moreover, the research we do for each Formosa Files episode, without fail, sparks ideas for at least two more episodes.
1: Yeah, we never need to worry about what topic we can cover next. Uh, We always have enough stories. In fact, there's an overload of historical material available.
0: And as we mentioned in the editorial, this is where storytelling skills come to the fore. You know, you have to transform distant events into relatable experiences. The goal is to make the past feel vivid, to place listeners in the shoes, you know, if you can, of historical protagonists. Rather than a series of predestined points on a linear trajectory, um, history is messy. So many alternate possible outcomes could have happened. Like, you know, what if the United States had not closed down the ROC's secret? atomic weapons program. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine? We, we'd be in a very mm. different situation today vis-a-vis a certain neighbor to our uh, uh, West. What if Kashinga had not expelled the Dutch from Taiwan? What mm-hmm. if Chiang Kai-shek had abandoned Jinmen and Mazu Islands back in you know, the 50s?
1: Yes, yes. All possibilities, what you've just mm-hmm. mentioned. Another thing we've learned is that while Formosa Files is focused on the history of Taiwan, so many of our stories have a global or regional component. Of course, it's to be expected that Taiwan history would be packed with stories of uh, cultural ties with Fujian or uh, uh, military uh, interaction with Japan, but there are so many unexpected global connections from further afield.
0: Yeah, Um, for instance, disputes in Northern Vietnam leading to French forces fighting in Taiwan during the Sino-French War of 1884, 1885. Taiwan had nothing to do with it.
1: Right. (laughs) And in England, uh, in Victorian England, there are some chemical, industrial chemical breakthroughs uh, using camphor and then it increases the demand and then you get incursions up into the indigenous areas, sparking wars. So yes, all these global dominoes, very interesting.
0: I think it's fair to say, John, we both love history. But um, ironically, perhaps, our deep immersion into the past has given us a greater appreciation for the present.
1: It's natural to have a a feeling that things are better in the past, right? You know, nostalgia, uh, the good old days. Mm. But uh, I like modern dentistry.
0: (laughs) Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, to study history is to realize how lucky we are today.
0: I'm also thinking that, you know, it, it helped me understand that So much of the nostalgia is really just thinking about when you were young, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Everything was wonderful when you
0: were in your 20s, but yeah. So over the three Mm. seasons of Formosa Files, another thing that's interesting is it's taught us how personal the podcasting medium is. Listener feedback Mm -hmm. and engagement has been wonderful. There's a certain closeness to the audience that comes from the intimacy of, of hearing a human voice, uh, our human voices, especially when the content is informal and fun as we, we, we try to make it.
1: Yes, and a regular weekly release makes our podcast something of a habit, a part of people's schedules.
0: So how do book readers compare with podcast listeners in terms of the amount and kind of feedback you get? Because you are uh, an author, a published author, and also a publisher. So yeah, what's your take on that? What's what's the difference?
1: Well, books are my first love, and I would say they make a deeper connection. But podcasts, they're more intimate in a way, like a friend. To the reader, a book author seems more distant, so people don't write to you very often. Uh, They're much more likely to reach out to uh, podcast hosts
0: yeah we uh, so, I just yeah. got a letter like ten minutes ago. um it's amazing. people write in about small things they comment on uh twitter it's 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 wonderful
1: yes, so more readers writing to authors, please. hey, but Eric, you will soon be in a position to judge this question for
0: yourself. Judge whether uh podcasts are closer to people's hearts or books so you yeah you, you want to make you want to make that big announcement now, yeah.
1: We can at least tease. We can announce an upcoming announcement. How does that sound?
0: All right. Fair enough. And I'm going to do a drum roll. (coughs) That wasn't really a roll. In 2024, Formosa Files is going to launch its own brand of canned stinky tofu for export. No! (laughs) No. We're going to launch a publishing house. We're going to publish books on Taiwan history, of course, but we will also have a wider focus. You know, not just history and not just Taiwan.
1: That's right. Fiction and nonfiction, works covering East Asia, and the name of this new venture, Plum Rain Press.
0: That's right. Plum Rain Press. We're working on the website and working on the first books. We'll give you an update at the end of the year.
1: Eric, the name Plum Rain Press will have some people wondering what plum rain refers to.
0: It's the East Asian rainy season, Chinese meiyu, in late spring, early summer. It's a phrase and phenomenon common to China, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, and we chose it because it reflects the area coverage of our books.
1: Yes. Our listeners in northern Taiwan might have different feelings, but the plum rains are very welcome down here in southern Taiwan after the dry summer and spring. The reservoirs are uh, needing water. They're running low.
0: Those early summer rains are a welcome relief. They clear the air and cool the temperatures. Okay, well, uh, after that announcement, you might as well tell them um, what episodes are coming up in the, uh, the the final stretch of season three here.
1: Oh, okay. For most of all episodes coming up, we have a two-part episode on Wu Li Pei, an important figure in pro-democracy, pro-independence movements here, and uh, a big figure in the Taiwanese-American community.
0: Yeah, and that was at a listener's request. We thought we could cover it in one episode, but it grew into two.
1: Yeah, we are a river to our people.
0: Um, indeed.
1: No sign of recognition on your face, my friend. That's paraphrasing a line from probably my favorite film, Lawrence of Arabia.
0: Yeah, I've seen it. Uh, What year was that film again?
1: 1962 by British director David Lean.
0: 1962. Well, I wasn't born then.
1: Neither was I. But uh, anyway, it's a little dangerous doing listener requests. Uh, Other listeners will be wondering about their own requests.
0: Yeah, well, let's run through some of them. People have asked for episodes on the contested islands in the South China Sea, about the computer chip manufacturer TSMC, and of course, the founder, uh, Morris Zhang. What else?
1: Operation Vanguard, that's uh, an ROC aid program in Africa. And then there was a request for the Grand Hotel.
0: So we're going to be doing all of those.
1: Yes, but as you know, the way we do stories is...
0: Story, material, before topic.
1: Yeah, rather than come up with a topic and then find material for a story which may or may not exist, we want to find the material first. So book recommendations from listeners, always welcome, or could even be a scientific paper or so. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, this has been fun. And before we go, I just want to go back to Chodofu because it's been a winning strategy. You know, I was making fun of it and making a video, but our, our, our listens went up, our views went up.
1: Yeah, you were right. We actually have quite a few videos on YouTube, proper historical videos, but the view numbers are worse than your, your stinky tofu nonsense.
0: Stinky tofu for the win. So, I was just noticing that on Wikipedia, it gives the 39 volatile organic compounds that contribute to the unique smell of fermented stinky tofu. So I don't know what any of these are because I know nothing about this. So if you're into chemicals, you could look it up. But my favorite part is this indole one, which is described as having an intense fecal odor.
1: An intense fecal odor.
0: Mmm, yum.
1: You can explain that one to uh, non-native English speakers.
0: No, I think they can look it up for themselves. We're good.
1: (laughs) Okay. Thanks Uh, for listening. I'm looking forward to your uh, short video on that,
0: yeah. (laughs) Oh no. Thanks for listening to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith.
1: I'm John Ross. Bye.